Well, many of you know, because we've been talking about it, that um, beginning this morning and over the next seven weeks, we are going to be, um, our small groups are going to be going through a book called The Prodigal God by Timothy Keller. It's a, I, in my opinion, it's a, it's a, it's a very powerful, short read. Um, and one of the things that draw, drew me to it and, and others to it is, as Tim Keller says in, in one of the chapters, that really the story of the prodigal son taken out of Luke chapter 15 is kind of a micro story of the big story of, of redemption. That is, it's kind of the short version of the entire Bible. And as such, it covers fundamental truths like um, human sinfulness uh, in its various deceptive forms. Um, of how human sinfulness dismantles and infects human relationships and our relationship with God, but ultimately a story about the conquering love of a father for his wayward son who's, who's wandered way off the reser- reservation. And um, it is our hope that not just reading it, but meditating and considering and taking to heart its truths, that it might have a, an impact on us, um, that it would have an impact on you individually and and then it would have an impact on your relationships and perhaps some old tears will be um, mended and, and um, more than anything that you would be overwhelmed by the healing power of our Father's love. It really does change us. It heals us. And it brings the family back together. So that's our, our hope for the study. The question is, well, what do, I, what do I preach on or what do I teach on on Sundays along with this? I, I don't want to try and replicate what, what Tim Keller does because I can't keep up with that. Um, at the same time, I didn't want to go away from it. Um, I wanted to reinforce some of the foundational truths that he lays out in that great exposition of the prodigal son story of Luke 15. So what I've decided to do is over the course of the next seven weeks, I'm going to look at little pieces of the story through the lens of other scriptures. Um, the first two messages, this week and next week, I want to look at the sinful approaches of the two brothers in the story. For those of you who don't know, it's basically a story of a father who has two sons. And um, the youngest son comes and asks for his inheritance, even though his father is alive. The father gives him what he wants. He goes away and he squanders it on reckless living and finally ends up coming back and the father receives him. Meanwhile, the older brother's at home, um, uh, probably looked at as the golden boy, the golden child of the family. Um, Never left, never did anything wrong. Um, the, the, the kind of the perfect son, but underneath that seeming perfection is a very deceitful and um, damning sin. And as Keller well points out, these two sons basically typify two approaches to life, two sinful approaches to life. So what I want to do is I want to this week look at the, the path of the younger son through the eyes of Romans 1 and look at the path of the older son through the eyes of Romans 2. It's interesting that Paul addresses both of these approaches in Romans 1 and 2, the way of the prodigal and the way of the older son. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to to first read a portion, the first part of the story of the prodigal son. Then I'm going to transition to Romans 1, and I think you'll see the parallels are obvious. This is a parable uh, given by Jesus, Luke 15, beginning in verse 11. This is what it says. And he said, this reference to Jesus, um, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Now, most of you know that that would be 
dishonoring to say the least, to ask of inheritance while your father's still alive. But he does, dishonors his father. Um, and he divided his property between them. Verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. He wanted to get as far away from his dad and his home life as possible. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. Not a good thing for the Jewish person to do. Um, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and so no one gave him anything. He ends up alone. But when he came to himself, that's a way of saying he realized he had a moment of realization of what was taking place, a rational moment. When he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish, he's on the edge of death, here with hunger. Uh, verse 18, I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Romans chapter 1, verse 21. Paul writes, For although they knew God, he's talking about humanity in general, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in their lusts to their hearts, of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creator or creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing acts, shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to debased mind to do what they ought not, what not, not, what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Like the story of the prodigal son, Paul records for us a, a moral descent, not of an individual, but a people, um, of the human race. This is a, a description or an explanation, not of the prodigal son, but of the prodigal human race. That is, turned from the Father, turned from God, exchanged the Creator for the cre creation and then wandered in a direction that is, uh, well, it's nothing less than sensual, out of control, lawless, much like the prodigal, prodigal son. So I saw parallels as I was thinking about the prodigal son in relation to, to Paul here. And uh, in this passage, in this Romans passage, 1, 21 and following, Paul kind of lays out for us the nature of sin and then the trajectory of sin. That is how it moves. Um, now, 
that is basically what I want to explore is, is this, the path that the prodigal took or the path of the prodigal human race to understand what, um, what it consists of in terms of a path or approach of life and where it ends. Now, you might be thinking, okay, this sounds like a really dark sermon, a dark message, because we're going to talk about the nature of sin and the trajectory of sin. And yet, I think um, Rich Robinson hit it right on the head last week, that if there is no knowledge of sin, nothing makes sense in the Bible. Um, Jesus doesn't fit. He had to die for nothing. Um, we don't really understand the nature of our fallen souls or fallen humanity. Um, we don't understand that there's something deeper than education or deeper than political problems, that there's something moral that's wrong with us inside. So we don't understand ourselves, we don't understand Christ, we don't understand the Bible that seems uh, hopelessly irrelevant if we don't get this thing called sin right. And I know that people don't like to talk about sin, but for the Christian, there is a very essential, crucial need to get your head around it, what it is and how it works. Not only protect yourself, but to understand humanity. And without that understanding, we don't understand the overwhelming, immeasurable grace and love of God that came and rescued us. So we have to understand the approach. We have to understand how, how sin works. Otherwise, the rest of the Bible doesn't really make sense, and we fail to know or diagnose the central problem of the human, human condition. I say central problem because, as anyone here knows, if you're going to solve a problem or cure an ailment, you have to have a proper diagnosis of it. And Paul lays out three whole chapters, one, two, and three of Romans, kind of, kind of lay out for us the diagnosis of the human problem. And it isn't political, it isn't educational, and it's certainly not environmental. It is moral, is what he says here. Get our heads around this. Well, as I said, he kind of moves us in two directions of this prodigal human race. Um, he gives us the nature of sin, but then tells us its trajectory, how it moves. And that's kind of the two parts to this. And then I'm going to end with the remedy. Um, because there is a remedy for sin. And that remedy is not political. It's not educational. And it's not environmental. It has to do with morality and with God. So there's two parts, the nature of sin. Paul basically in this chapter at least says three things about the nature, what it consists of. Um, sinful actions, sinful desires, and a sinful exchange. You might think of this as three layers of an onion, um, with the deepest part being the center. On the outer layer, we have sinful actions. Now, what I'm going to say is not new to most of you, but it's... Dangerously controversial. People in general, as you know, are okay saying things like, yeah, we're a messed up people, or to err is human, or to talk about sin in nebulous and general ways. But it's when you get particular about what consists of a sinful action that we find ourselves in trouble, and we find ourselves as Christians oftentimes labeled bigoted, because we believe that there are absolute rights and absolute wrongs in terms of, of actions. I don't have to tell you that uh, we live in a culture where those boundary lines of morality are constantly shifting. Um, they're either dissolving, being redrawn, justified, or uh, just <sighs> redefined. However, People who believe in a God who has set things up in a particular way, who is a, a moral God with a moral heart and hates injustice and hates evil and loves what is good, we must maintain the boundaries of, 
of his morality. And by the way, just as a bit of, bit, of, bit of a side note, if you ask anybody out in the community, do you believe in absolute right and wrong, they may say no. But then if you go immediately to the Holocaust and say, well, what is what Hitler did wrong? And of course they'd say yes, so they do have a sense of morality. But then if you turn the question around and said, okay, what about abortion? They'd say, well, that's a matter of choice, not morality. Which then you'd have to respond and say, well, what gives you the right to determine which is which? People do believe in rights and wrongs. They just re relay the lines, um, redefine it. The Bible says there are sinful actions. That's the outer layer. Now, let me just list some of them. These are just a sampling. And uh, again, if this offends you, we'll, we'll just lay the offense at Paul and the Holy Spirit who inspired him. Um, Homosexual Acts, chapter 1, verse 27. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men. There it is. That doesn't fly in today's culture. But, lest we do the mistake that many Christians do and make this a hobby horse sin, let's add the other things to the list in his list of actions. Murder, most of us don't struggle with that. Deceit. I don't think there's a person here who hasn't deceived someone or some organization at some point. Gossip, chapter 1, verse 29. Anybody here not commit a sin of the lips? Um, slander, boasting, my favorite, disobedient to parents. This is my new hobby horse sin in my house, disobedience to parents. But all this to say, these are sinful actions. There are sinful actions of sin. Get our heads around that. Now, if you ask me, one of the mistakes that we have made as Christians regarding how we approach sinful actions is that we have made a number of mistakes. One is, is that we have, um, we have not been humble enough to acknowledge to the world that we screw up too. And that some of these things on this list we struggle with in this room. So therefore, to approach things with humility. I think another thing that we oftentimes fail to do is, is what we actually think that we're supposed to be as Christians, the police or the enforcers of morality, and we're not. God uh, has, has uh, ordained government to do that, and ultimately his own government at judgment. Um, and in focusing on sinful actions, which is, is a good thing, it's important for us not to miss the heart. That... Sinful actions are simply a product of sinful passions. So the problem isn't just a behavioral one. It's, a, it's an internal one. And that's something else Richard Robinson said last week. It's the heart. And that's where we have to kind of get to, to the second layer of the onion here. Is this sinful actions are produced because people want to do them. There's a desire, an inclination, a tilting of the heart towards sinful things. Away from God to sinful things. And that, of course, is the second layer. And he also brings that out in this passage where he gives a lot of heart words to sins. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts. Um, verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Those are things within, desires. Um, covetousness is something that takes place and begins in the heart. Um, envy is a thing of the heart. Uh, haters of God, hatred is a thing of the heart. Haughtiness, a sense of arrogance, is a, is a thing of the heart. Heartless, you know, that's the, that's the heart of it, is, is that there are sinful passions that we have that produce these, these sinful actions. And simply trying to deal with the actions, 
neglects where they come from. It's like clipping off a weed at the, at the seed point and not digging out the root. Is that we believe that the, the Bible teaches that sinful actions are produced by sinful desires, a sinful heart. But there's something even deeper than that. And that is, in this particular passage, a sinful exchange that's taken place. And the sinful exchange consists of this, is that we made a trade. Historically, and we make a trade, people make a trade in general every day. An exchange. And looked at in, a, in the light of the Bible, a betrayal. You see that too come to light in this Romans passage. The word exchange appears twice. Something was given up for something else. Let me read it again. Verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish, foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, and animals, and creeping things. I'll stop there and just make a comment. He's talking about idols, images. Now, in our particular culture that is fundamentally atheistic or naturalistic, we may not have these little representations of idols, but there still is idolatry everywhere. We worship technology. Um, we worship youth. There's, it's just the same. It's just changed. The names have changed, and we don't have little images anymore. But there was an exchange for the glory of the immortal God for things that, that look like earthly things. And then to continue on there in verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged, there's a word again, they traded the truth about God for a lie. The truth about the almighty, all-satisfying God for a lie. And the lie is essentially that the creation is better than the creator. That the joy experienced in the pursuit of worldly pleasure is better than the pleasure we find in God himself. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Um, Growing up years, uh, my sister is eight years older than I am. And um, my birthday yesterday, and she called me up and she said, Danny, you're getting old. And uh, I said to her, I said, you're eight years older than me. You're still older than me. But you know, when we were children, um, I had a coin. I was probably four, five. I had a coin with a picture of JFK on the front. And my older sister, who's as I said, eight years older than me, she came to me with five coins with Abraham Lincoln on the front. She said, Danny, I'll trade you these five coins for your one coin. Now, again, I was completely ignorant, but I thought to myself, wow, that seems like a pretty good exchange. So she gave me her five pennies, and I gave her my 50-cent piece. Because I thought, this is pretty good. My sister's being really gracious and giving me five for my one. My mother found out about it and immediately reversed the exchange and scolded my sister because she swindled me. She robbed me. In my ignorance, I believed the lie that the five better than the one. In the ignorance, 
in the foolishness of, 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 of human thinking, there was a lie presented. And God really isn't the best. His value is not infinite. And he is not ultimately good and loving. And then a trade was made. And we traded down. Now I use coins and money, but put that in terms of real people. To take one of my children that I love with my whole heart and to, to take it to, let's say, the front of a, of a liquor store. And to trade one of my children for a bottle of alcohol. You would all look at me and say, how could you? Take something so wonderful and so amazing and trade it for something so worthless. And that's what he's saying. And that's the trade, that's exchange that took place. All of sin was set in motion because we found or believed the lie that created things and the pleasures they produce is better than God himself. That led to the sinful passions, which then led to the sinful actions, pursuing the wrong direction. And by the way, that trade is made every day. It's not just a historical thing. It's an experiential one. You know, every day, people choose the peace provided by either a bottle or pills or a funny movie over the peace and solace they find in the presence of God. Or finding or basing their sense of security on the attainment, acquisition, saving, or spending of money. Rather than trusting in the God who is our refuge and strength and our fortress, our stronghold, our shield and defender. People around the world believe subtly that the next sexual experience is more powerful and more wonderful than the simplicity of knowing and loving and communing with Jesus Christ. And that's the lie. That's the lie. And that's the trade that's made every day. Is that I really believe in my heart of hearts that creation satisfies more than my creator. And that's why people are restless. That's why human history is nothing but a constant, turbulent, chasing, seeking, trying to fill what is unfillable because the only thing that's supposed to fill is the presence of God. Like trying to put a round peg in a square hole, that's humanity, trying to figure it out. Why am I not satisfied? Why, living in Beverly Hills, would I commit suicide? Because there's, there's a hole there. Can't satisfy. That, by the way, reminds me of a, of a scene in a movie. Uh, you'll remember this if you've seen Pirates of the Caribbean, t- first one. There's this little exchange between Captain Barbosa and Miss Turner where he explains the nature of the curse that's been put on he and his crew. And this is what he says, because this is Romans 1. This is what he says, speaking to her. He says, we spent them and traded them. He's talking about the gold coins of Cortez upon which there was a curse. We spent them and traded them and frittered them away on drink and food and pleasurable company. The more we gave them away, the more we came to realize that drink would not satisfy. Food turned to ash in our mouths and all the pleasurable company in the world could not slake our lust. We are cursed men, Miss Turner, compelled by greed. We were, but now we are consumed by it. 
You've got to do that with kind of a pirate voice, but that's, that's it. That's Romans 1 right there. You're just trying to satisfy, but it just doesn't do it. Because we exchanged. We were meant for him, and, and he is to fill us. Or in a much more holy sense, uh, St. Augustine put it this way um, in his confessions. He said, you have created us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Restlessness is because there's a leaving behind. By the way, the way back is the reverse of this. You can't just reform actions. It begins with the turning of the heart back to the Father. The exchange is reversed by a miracle called regeneration in which the heart begins to believe and desire the spirit of the Psalms, Lord, who have I in heaven but you, and on earth there's nothing I desire besides you. Or I count all things lost in, in view of the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. That's the heart that has been flipped, and the exchange has been reversed, and now God is number one, which leads to a different set of desires, which then leads to a different set of actions. That's what we just sang from the inside out. Christianity begins with the heart in an exchange, a reversal, in which God then becomes, even if in seed form, the most important thing in life. And it all changes from there, inward to outward. Now, that's, the, that's kind of the nature of sin. Uh, the second part that he brings out is the trajectory or the movement. It's been clear over the years as people have studied this passage in Romans that there is this spiral downward. That it, it doesn't, sin isn't something static. It just doesn't maintain. Not in your life, not in the church, and not in the world. It descends. It takes you someplace. And this is where, in particular, the, the prodigal son story really comes out. One of the, well, let me just give you the three so you can get them. Um, is it leaves us in three, when sin is done with life, it does three things utterly. Um, it brings us to utter isolation, utter irrationality, and utter destruction. Those three things. That's the, the, if you think of sin as a train and you're on it, then this is the termination point. Um, utter loneliness, utter chaos, and utter destruction. That too comes out, I think, in this, this passage. Um, as you know, depending on how you define sin, and there's different ways of putting it, but basically it's kind of a self-centered approach to life that wants to gratify self at the expense of other people. In other words, a sinful heart by nature uses people and resources for its own private end. And I don't think there's a single person here who likes to be used. Sin is fundamentally relation-burning irrelational, anti-relational. It burns bridges between God and between people. That's what it does. It's corrosive. It melts relationships. Um, no, no relationship can exist forever where there is a constant inflation of self-centeredness. It just breaks things apart. But if you look at the things in this list, by the time you get to the end and everything descends down to the bottom of the, of the cavern, you see all of these anti-relational sins covetousness, wanting what somebody else has and hating them because they have it. 
or malice. That's a, that's a relation-breaking word. Gossip, it's a relation-melting word. Envy, it's a relational, anti-relational word. Murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slander, hatred, haughtiness, boastfulness, ruthful living. It, it, it burns bridges everywhere. So at the end, sin leaves you completely and utterly isolated and alone. All bridges burned. No one left. I have never truly experienced the horror of true loneliness. I've always known since I was a kid that God was there. But take that away. I've heard it is horrific. But that's where it leaves us, is is isolated. And as many theologians have reflected over the years... That's the essence of hell, is absolute isolation and separation from all relationship, first and foremost with God, but others as well. You can't stand to be around people. You hate people. That's where it leaves you. And I think our our own common experience tells us, and biblical truth tells us that too. After sin, what did Adam do? He hid. He withdrew from community with God and, and, and then started to blame his wife. That's what it does. It melts relationships. It leaves one isolated. One of the first signs that somebody's doing something wrong is usually when they start to withdraw. Isn't that correct? I believe it's correct. I mean, I see it in my, when my kids were toddlers. When I could hear them laughing and having fun, I knew they were okay. But when everything went silent and they kind of withdrew into a room, I knew that they were doing something bad, taking mom's nail polish and painting the carpet or something. It's just, you know... Withdrawal is usually a sign that something is going on. And I can tell you, almost without exception, that every time someone in this congregation who has started to walk down the wrong path, it always resulted in withdrawal from community. Separation from the people that love them the most and can help them. That's what it does. It leaves you in utter isolation. Hell by Nature is the polar opposite of the warmth of loving community. So it leaves us in utter isolation. You want to be lonely? Well, walk down the path of the prodigal. You'll find yourself alone. Utter irrationality. He talks a lot about the mind in this chapter. Darkened mind, foolishness. But by the time you get to the end, you read this. Chapter 1, verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. Their mind didn't function correctly. They couldn't see things correctly. Irrationality set in. Sin leads to faulty thinking, a faulty outlook on the world. You can't reason properly. That's what it does. No, no, No sin, when you really look at it, is rational. It may be understandable, but not rational. Like a guy who, who, who finds himself addicted to gambling, who gambles his uh, paychecks away at the expense of his family. Is, is that rational? Well, of course not. Maybe understandable in terms of his addiction, but rational? No, it's, it, it's, it's not. Because no sin is rational. And by the time sin dumps a person off at the end, they're completely crazy. I'd be willing to say that much of the mental disease that we have, not all, I get yelled at by a couple people here by saying that, because there are other factors involved, chemical and so forth, but some of it is the fact that people, a person has walked down a particular road and their mind has been twisted by their own sin, they can't see anymore. 
It just confuses and, and it twists one's ability to think rationally. So it leaves us in a place irrational. And then the last part of that is just, is it's destructive. It ends one with death. Um, Romans 1.32, at the very end, those who practice such things deserve to die. That's, that's a way of saying it. That's where it ends. It ends in utter destruction. Now, that's the natural path of the prodigal. That's the natural path of sin. Is it leaves one isolated and alone. It is irrational at its root, and ultimately it destroys life. Because that, that, that's kind of a a way of breaking down how sin works and where it moves, its nature and its trajectory. Now, now think about it for a moment. This is precisely these things that you see on the screen behind me. These are precisely the things or the process that the prodigal son goes through. He exchanged the love of his father for an inheritance. And he took that inheritance, a created inheritance, and he spent it on his own passions and then acted those passions out. It's the nature of sin working itself out. But when you find him at the end of sin's road, where is he? He is alone, which I pointed out. No one gave him anything. He was utterly, completely isolated and alone. That's the end of the trip for him. He is on the edge of starvation. He's afraid he's going to perish because he doesn't have food. So he is at death's door and... By implication, he is irrational because it says in the text that he came to himself. There was a moment of rational understanding. What am I doing? That's the path of the prodigal. That's the path of the prodigal people. And as Paul designed this, we were part of that people. Now, I don't think Paul gave us these chapters or this chapter to leave us in a dark place. Um... And I certainly don't want to leave us in a dark place either. I don't want to be in a dark place. If this is all I had to dwell on, I'd probably go out and drive my car into a bridge embutment. But it's not. He tells us these things so that we understand how far God's love goes. And that even... Even the prodigal people, the prodigal human race, as with the prodigal son, that there is nothing that can outrun the grace and the mercy of the Father's love. He's telling this to remind us of who we were and where apart from Christ we would be. You know, I I find it not accidental that in this chapter where it talks about God giving them up to what they want, like this prodigal father gave his son the inheritance, probably with the understanding he was going to squander it, that the same God who gave them over or up to their lusts and passions is the same God who gave himself up in the person of his son on a cross to die for our sins and take the wrath that's being here unfolded. That the people described in Romans 1, which is all humanity, um, are also the ones that it says God demonstrates his love for us that while we were still sinners, while we were still on this road, he died for us. 
That is, it serves as the background, the horizon of understanding just how far God's love went to retrieve the prodigal person. People like you, people like me. And that's ultimately the solution is the Father's love. Now, we'll get more into that in the weeks to come, but that's the solution. But it's imperative for us to understand the nature of sin. I mean, for a whole bunch of reasons. One is you really start to think about this, and it it sobers me. Do I really want to walk that path? And everybody in here is capable of walking that path. I think another thing that it does for me is it certainly humbles me and makes me realize, you know what? There's no one here who worships who is a believer who does not stand by grace and grace alone. This is who the human race is and who we once were. And it's by a sheer act of the loving grace of God that we came to believe in the first place. There's a lot of humility that comes with that. I think another thing that it does for me is just taking a look at the nature of sin and then the remedy in Christ is, is it, um, it gives me a compassion for the prodigal, realizing that God loves people who have wandered way off the reservation, who have made an absolute mess of their lives, people who live in districts of, of San Francisco that nobody wants to go into, that, that God's love is, is so big and so wide and so deep and so far-reaching. And to see people as even people who have messed up in, in profoundly perverted ways, as long as there is breath in them, there is hope. But it also struck me, and this is, I kind of want to end with this, because uh, it also struck me that there are people in our own congregation or family who, who know that they're on the prodigal path. I know there are. You there's a sense of guilt, and maybe you come to church because you, you, you know something's missing. Meanwhile, you're still walking in the opposite direction. Sinful action because you have a sinful passion because still you're exchanging God for some other thing. And I, I just thought there's an appeal here. You know, if, if you happen to be one of those people, and maybe you've been looked at as the black sheep of your family. And this comes home for me because I have a, someone really close in my family that I love so much who is still on this path. And I just more than anything want to be able to say to her, never think that God's love can't cover your guilt. Covered mine and cover yours. So if you're one of those people that you look back and you see carnage in your past, broken relationships, melted relationships, you know you're in a bad place. You're just going down this particular path of pursuing pleasure in this world, trying to get a little religion. I just appeal to you on the basis of Romans 1 and Romans 5. From the Father's perspective, come home. Open your eyes. Come to that rational moment and say, you know what, I'm wrong. Not only have I done wrong things, but my whole path and approach to life is wrong. And I just, again, on the basis of Scripture, I just invite you to come home. The Father's love waits. He has provided atonement for all who believe. Come home. You don't need to live under the pile of guilt anymore because he bore it to the cross and live in the freedom of the Father's love. Come back home. Because he is life.
He is joy. He's security. He's everything we need. If you're willing to believe, admit, Lord, I'm wrong. I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. So uh, I just want to kind of leave it with that appeal if that happens to be you. Um, if you're not in that position, I know that you know somebody who is. It might be a son or a daughter who's way off the track. We just spend a couple of moments just praying for them and being reminded that they're not outside the bounds of God's powerful love. So pray for them. And if you happen to be one of those people who, like, come to the realization today, you know what? I am alone. I am confused. Then call out to the Lord. He's here. He's listening. And if that's you, I would encourage you afterwards just to tell somebody about it. You need help. You need relationship. You need community. So let's spend a few moments just kind of responding and praying for those that you might know that have wandered way off. And and if you're one of those, then to, to hear God speaking to you, come home. Just pray for a few moments and then we'll worship.